Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide, does a certain job sound interesting to them? And if yes, how do they go about exploring it further? Now, on today's episode, we'll be covering a fairly non-traditional career, something quite different from the majority of the careers that we've covered so far on this podcast. We'll be talking about professional mountaineering and what that life is like. So our guest today is Kim Hess. And over the span of her career, Kim has climbed a number of peaks, including Mount Everest, Mount Denali, and Mount Kilimanjaro. And as you'll hear in the discussion, her next expedition is going to be to Mount Winson, which is the highest peak in Antarctica. Yes, so very, very exciting. And as you'll find in today's episode, we do not go into a lot of details around what life itself is like as a mountaineer, the kind of scary and rewarding moments that you might run into. We do talk a little bit about that, but we spend a lot more time talking about what does it take to actually make a career as a mountaineer? How do you make a living working as a mountaineer? So I hope you enjoy today's discussion. And with that, let's welcome Kim. Good morning. Hey, Kim, how are you? Welcome to the show. Uh I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. No, I'm so excited to have you on because this is very different from the more traditional careers that we've covered. And I'm <laughs> looking forward to learning what it's like to work as a mountaineer in a professional capacity. So I thought that maybe before we get into the details, we can do a very quick rapid fire just to show the highlights or or give a flavor for what it's like to work as a mountaineer. Sure. So my first question for you, which is, I guess, a little bit obvious, but uh, what is the highest point that you have climbed up to physically by yourself? Uh, last spring, I climbed to the summit of Mount Everest, which is 29,034 feet. Oh, now it's 29,000 feet. I remember when I studied the height in high school, it was 28,000 feet. But I know that they sort of... The mountain. No, slowly yeah, twenty nine thousand. Don't take that. Don't take that away from me. Twenty nine thousand. <laughs> yeah. Thirty four feet. Uh, some sources say it's twenty nine thousand twenty eight feet, but give or take. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Give or take. <laughs> awesome. And can you think of one of the most scary moments that you've had during any of your ascents? So on my very first attempt on Everest in 2015, there was a 7.8 earthquake that struck Nepal, and I was sitting at about 21,000 feet up at Camp 2. And as wow. a result of the earthquake, there was uh, avalanches that hit us mm -hmm. from three different sides and demolished base camp. And finally, I find myself in the middle of a war zone, essentially, uh, on a mountain. So hands down, scariest moment probably of my life. <laughs> Oh, wow. I can. Im Is this the same earthquake where there was a Google employee who was killed? Correct. Yeah. He was down at base camp and part of base camp just got wiped out um, from a blast of an avalanche, which was not something that anybody ever really expected. Yeah. So hard to prepare for. Wow, that must have been quite scary. And so we'll definitely talk about that, that, you know, where do you get the courage to go back after something yeah. like that? Yeah. Um, and my third question in this rapid fire for you is that what is one of the worst setbacks that you've had during any one of your expeditions? Uh, I think the biggest setback was definitely when I was climbing Denali. 
uh, I had an accident on the way down that was just kind of bad luck, misfortune, nothing I could have done differently, but ended up breaking my arm. And at about 17,000 feet, I had a hand facing the wrong direction and knew that I was going to be, uh, I was in trouble, sort of. Mm. So by the time I got off the mountain uh, and got to a doctor and it took two and a half years to get my arm back and four surgeries and a couple of years of physical therapy and, and no climbing in that time. So definitely biggest oh, wow. setback. Yeah. And so when you say broken your arm, did you literally, what happened? Like, I, I had broken, um, so the two bones in your arm, your radius and ulna, I had broken both of those completely in half. And then I had oh, yeah. a displacement of each of those. So essentially my elbow was kind of back further than it should be. And my wrist was misshapen and, uh, I broke my hand and everything was just a hot mess, mm. uh, all up in my arms. So the first surgery was six and a half hours long. I had a lot of pins, screws and plates put in there and, and then it took three more surgeries to get it just right. So, yeah. Well, if you could see my face right now, it's all scrunched up because, <laughs> oh my God. And, uh, and I guess you had to still this was while you were coming down. So you still had to go all the way down while you, your arm is broken and your wrist is misshapen. Yeah. So I had to, um, with the help of an assistant guide, we, he kind of grabbed my, my fingers and I pulled my elbow back and we tried to set it. So it was at least going the right direction. And then I had to climb down another couple thousand feet and then waited at high camp for two days for a helicopter to fly. And once wow. the weather cleared, I got a nice little ride off that mountain and uh, mm-hmm. straight to a hand specialist in Anchorage. So yeah, it, uh, it turned out to be quite the exciting expedition and the biggest setback, um, you know, mm-hmm. to go from having no fear to learning how to tie your shoe again and use your fingers is something that I didn't really anticipate yeah. happening in my life. So yeah. And actually in my rapid fire, so I want to add one more question because otherwise it just sounds really, really dreary. <laughs> is, um, maybe describe one of the most beautiful moments that you've experienced during your expeditions. I think, yeah, one of the prettiest moments was uh, definitely climbing Mount Everest. It was, I summited at about 5 a.m. in the morning and it was maybe 20 minutes before that I reached what's called the South Summit. Hmm. And at the South Summit, uh, the sun was was coming up on my right and the full moon was going to sleep on my left. And I, it was just this moment of quiet and peace where I was literally by myself in the dark watching this amazing scene kind of unfold. And it was kind of in that moment where I just remember feeling like I did it and I did it when everybody said I couldn't. Mm. What do you mean? Everyone said you couldn't. Um, people have always doubted my ability to succeed in the sport especially Mount Everest, you tell somebody you're climbing Mount Everest and you're a female and you're young and you're not very tall and they automatically judge you and say that you can't do it. So Mm. instead of getting upset by that over the years, I just kind of laugh and say, well, watch me. I'll beat all the boys to the top. And (laughs) I usually do. So um, I think the South Summit, it was just a moment of pride where I just had a moment to reflect where I wasn't quite on the summit yet, but I, you know, I knew I was going to make it and it was just a a time to reflect on every step I had taken to get there and every setback and, you know, every person who said I couldn't and every person who said I could and, and just kind of celebrating the whole experience. 
Yeah, good for you. <laughs> How? Yes, yeah, so I I want to understand your journey a little bit because clearly it seems that you know it's not been easy. Not a lot of people have been supportive. It's it's been driven primarily by your uh, very strong desire to do this. So, uh, first of all, like, would you describe yourself as a professional mountaineer? Like, if I met you. at at an event somewhere how would you describe what you did i don't know that i would say i'm a professional mountaineer i think probably the first thing out of my mouth because i'm i still have a hard time kind of accepting the role uh, i'm in now is i'd say i'm a ski bum i live in a small ski town i love to ski i have several jobs i wear you know several different hats but i do a lot of public speaking i'm writing a book and i like to climb and that's probably <laughs> how i would introduce yeah. myself yeah So it's interesting. So you say you like to climb. So do you climb stuff other than mountains? Yeah, uh, I'm not a very good rock climber. I think a big misconception is that if you're good at rock climbing, you're good at ice climbing, which means you're good at mountaineering or you're good at climbing at an indoor gym. They're all very different sports. Hmm. So I excel at the high altitude mountaineering. My body works well at that. Uh, I'm not a very good rock climber. I don't know why I, rock climbing scares me so much for whatever reason. And I'm becoming a pretty good ice climber, but again, stuff I'm always working on. Gotcha. Okay. So your specialty is high altitude mountaineering. Yeah. Okay. All right. So when did this interest in climbing begin? Like do you come from a family of people who climb? How did this happen? No. So I grew up in Oklahoma and <laughs> well, I'm just yeah. imagining that I don't think there are any mountains there are they? No, it's yeah. very flat. There's a lot yeah. of cornfields. So, yeah, that's why I mean the story is is kind of ironic. But yeah, I grew up in Oklahoma and then moved to Denver when I was 5 for mm-hmm. my dad's job and uh at some point we think maybe when I was around 8 years old, uh my parents' best friend was showing us a slideshow. of the trip she took to, to Nepal when she was 30 and i just remember looking at these pictures thinking oh my gosh it's so beautiful and i want to go there and then i remember seeing a picture of everest and i think just as a little girl thinking i want to go see that but i also wanted to be an astronaut and go to the moon and <laughs> you know be a professional ballerina and all sorts of things that seemed kind of outrageous at the time so I think the seed was planted when I was 8 and then the older I got ever specifically kept kind of coming back into my life. I read the John Krakauer book Into Thin Air in mm-hmm. high school and you know that was the first time that anybody had really written about Everest and the commercialization of it and and what a tragedy it was and instead of being scared away I thought this sounds awesome. I want to do it. But I was in high school, I still needed to go to college and do some other things and So I went to college and then there was a TV series that the Discovery Channel did called Everest Beyond the Limit hmm. that I was super just obsessed with and I would watch it and you know now I could see what it looked like to climb I could see what it did to somebody physically I could hear the sounds of it I you know whatever but I was in college and and I think it left my life again and then a couple years later I was coming home after traveling for a couple years and my brother was upset that his baby sister had been to more countries than he had. <laughs> and I said, "Well, you're the one that got a corporate job. I, you know, I've just been traveling." Um, so he suggested that we climb the seven summits, and I didn't know what they were, and I just said, "Sure." 
And then the next morning I did some research and found out that one of the seven summits is in fact Everest. And I thought, well, I mean, I've been thinking about it my entire life. So let's give it a shot. Wow, that's quite a story. So it's but it sounds like you did not act actively start climbing up until you were what, um, 18, 19? Yeah, much later in life. I, I mean, I went to school in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and I used to mess around bouldering. And uh, I, I've always been an, an avid outdoors person. So I had been rock climbing, and I had, you know, done rappelling. I'd done the basics over the years. It was just never something that I stuck to. Um, I was always a big runner. So running was kind of my sport. And then most of my career up until college, I was playing soccer and basketball and softball and, and to throw in a, another sport just didn't even occur to me. So yeah, climbing something that I found later in life and turns out is the sport I'm the most passionate about. I see. So your basically your entry into this was through this challenge that hey let's do the seven summits together and so 100 percent, yeah okay. i see i see and i guess you just have stuck to it since then yeah i mean if i say i'm gonna do something i'm gonna do it unless it's not possible but i kind of think anything's possible so yeah i mean I, I i joke and say it was a bet with my brother and it kind of was but he does it with me so i don't know that a bet's the right word i guess a challenge but yeah, once we started and turned out, you know, we liked it and we didn't die and <laughs> we could convince we could convince our parents that we could keep going. I just kept going. Yeah. So then help me understand that what was the thought process behind doing this in a professional capacity? Because, you know, someone else could be like, you know what, like, I really enjoy this and I'm but I'm going to do it as a hobby. Right. I mean, I guess climbing right. Everest is not exactly a hobby, but, you know, some of the other peaks maybe. But you're doing it in a professional capacity. So uh, what was the thought process behind that? Well, yeah, I mean, in, in all honesty, you're you're right. Most people do mountaineering or attempt the seven summits because it's a hobby, right? The average climber is male, you know, mid to late 40s, early 50s. They all, for the most part, have had successful careers and, and this is a hobby for them. This is I don't want to call it a midlife crisis, but you know, this is something that they found later in life because mountaineering is very expensive. And for me, you know, I, like I said, I'm, you know, call myself a ski bum. I work seven days a week and multiple jobs and, you know, we'll do anything to, to save every penny and, and all that. So for me, I knew if I was ever going to accomplish these mountains, I was going to have to figure out a way to either make money doing it get somebody to pay for it or it was going to take a really long time for me to save the money to do it on my own. Mm. So going into it, I think that was probably the biggest challenge for me. I knew physically I could do it. I knew mentally I could do it. Uh, it was, where was I going to find the money? So from that, I, I kind of, I guess subconsciously took on the role of making money off of mountaineering, which I guess I never really consider yeah. myself doing. Interesting. So this is actually a really interesting point. I mean, what you're saying is that it was almost that you really wanted to do this and you were spending a lot of time on it. It is really expensive, however. And so for you, it was almost like, well, instead of me trying to work a bunch of odd jobs and trying to save money in order to be able to do this, why don't I try and make money off of mountaineering itself? Yeah, okay. exactly. And so what... And, go ahead. And it's, I mean, it's taken, you know, the first couple years, it, I wasn't making any 
any progress. It, it hasn't been until the last probably two years that I'm actually kind of reaping the benefits a little bit of the hard work. So it's mm-hmm. definitely been a very slow progression. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. How how does it work? How do you make money off of mountaineering? So I w- it, it was quite apparent to me on my very first trip when I was one of 16 one of 16 on a team climbing down in Argentina and I was the only female. And mm. at the time I was 24 years old and, you know, all of these old men that are, oh, I call them old men. They weren't that <laughs> old, but you know, they're all great friends of mine now, but I just remember being on that very first trip, realizing kind of what an uphill battle I had. And they all just said, you know, if you just get a real job and, and find a career, you'll be able to pay for these trips on your own. And you know, you won't have to stress about it. And I just said, yeah, but how am I going to find a job that will let me leave multiple times a year, you know, for up to nine weeks. That's Mm. just not going to happen. It's not realistic. So I kind of just started planning what can I capitalize on? And, and fortunately the greatest thing I can capitalize on is that I'm a female Mm. and there aren't a lot of female in the sport. So that was something that made me uncomfortable to kind of use to my advantage just because I, I think that men and women are equal and, why should I capitalize on my gender, but whatever. Uh, it took a really long time to get comfortable with that idea, but I knew that it was my biggest asset. So from there, uh, I tried to find sponsors and that was kind of the hardest part, finding corporate sponsors, because I had to figure out what was the point, right? Why should I convince a company to give me $10,000 to climb Denali? What were they going to get out of it? And at this time, you know, social media is, is so front and center in our world that I knew I was going to have to be open to sharing more about my personal life. I was going to have to be more active on social media outlets. I didn't know how to use Twitter. I didn't know what it was. I liked Instagram, but I never posted anything. And Facebook, I just like to keep personal because it was, you know, to share stuff with Mm -hmm. friends and family, not the world. And so right out of the gates, I had to kind of get uncomfortable with myself and and learn how to use social media to my advantage. Because when going to a company to ask for sponsorship, you have to show them that there's value in what you do. And the very first meeting I ever had was a company that's here in the town I live in. And I got a meeting with the CEO and I went and I totally bombed the meeting. And, and he literally looked at me and just said, Kim, this is a great story, but why should I care? And he said it a little more harsh than that with some (laughs) Hmm. not nice words in there. And I just looked at this man and I I wanted to cry. And in my head, I'm thinking, I don't know why you should care. I don't know what my story is. I don't know what my message is. I don't know how I'm valuable to you. I just know that I will be valuable. And I just, excuse me, and I just walked out of there heartbroken. And I felt like an idiot and I felt dumb and you know, this boardroom of people had literally just laughed at me and my story. And to hear no like that was very sobering. And from there, I knew I was going to have to kind of develop some tough skin moving forward. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of questions about this. But clearly, this sounds like a very, very tough, tough job, tough job in the sense that, you know, I can imagine that there are a lot of people who are doing some kind of extreme sport or the other and they're looking for sponsorships. So in this particular case, just to understand, why would a company sponsor you? What is your pitch to them? 
Yeah. So five years ago, I didn't know what that pitch was. And, Mm -hmm. and now it's not, I don't really view it so much as a pitch, just I'm a female in a male dominated sport. And what I have found over the years is I have this very interesting platform to which I can speak to younger generations, specifically women about um, overcoming gender barriers and just being confident that whatever you decide you want to do, as long as you really want to do it, you can in fact achieve it. And I think my story has just really struck with women, of course, because it's, you know, the underdog, but young women specifically really take to it. And I think seeing uh, a woman do something that's very physical and still have a hot pink helmet and, you know, be a girl that (laughs) that exists and that that's okay. So that's a big platform I've taken on is kind of female empowerment and really encouraging women Mm -hmm to get outside and explore and get uncomfortable and, and really learn about themselves through nature. Um, so, but that, it, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're up. <laughs> what, what I was trying to ask is that uh, like from a company's point of view, what do they want you to do? So, so let's say I'm, I'm the CEO of a company and I say, okay, Kim, I, I believe in what you're doing and it's great that, you know, you're, you can be a, a symbol for women who are interested in doing something similar, who are, who want to do something in sports or something outdoors. But what do I get in return? Like, are they asking you to, for example, if I'm North Face, like, am, am I asking you to wear my clothes all the time or am I asking you to tweet about me all the time? Yeah. So it just kind of depends. I mean, like the last partnership I just got done setting up last week uh, is with a healthcare system and all they want, which isn't much, is they're doing a, they're putting together a women's health convention later in the year. That's okay. one day down in Denver and mm-hmm. I'm showing up to be part of a panel and a meet and greet and a Q&A. And then I'm taking a flag to the summit of Mount Vincent, which is in Antarctica. And then I'm also required to do a certain amount of posts, social media wise, always tag them, stuff mm, like that. So every company is a little bit different. Um, one company just wanted me to have a patch on my down suit. Another company asked me to write an article for their catalog. It kind of gotcha. just depends. I mean, if it's something like North Face, yes, you would be wearing their their gear and, and tagging them. Um it kind of just depends what the company sees as valuable to them. Right, right. I see. Okay. I mean, it must be quite a job looking for sponsors who can potentially, who could potentially be interested in you, right? Like I wouldn't have ever imagined asking a healthcare system, but it seems that, you know, they see something. Yeah. I mean, it, gosh, it's it's a full-time job. I think, again, early on, I, I kind of recognized my place in the sport and a lot of people a lot of athletes that are maybe on the North face professional climbing team or the Patagonia climbing team or something like that. You know, it's, it's a very select few group of men and women, and I don't really fall into that category. Mm -hmm. So early on, I knew I was going to have to think outside the box and kind of like you said earlier, you know, there's a lot of people doing really cool things all the time and they're always looking for funding to do it. And I thought, well, instead of hitting up just outdoor industry companies or climbing companies or stuff like that, why not, why not look at, you know, Dove Soap? All -hmm. of their campaigns are based around women and empowering women. Why not look there? Or uh, I looked at a champagne company 
because life's greatest accomplishments tend to be celebrated with what? A bottle of champagne. So I really (laughs) just started thinking, you know, what are these companies outside of the outdoor industry that I could approach that would see value in what I'm doing? That's really creative. I have to say that's really creative. And I can see that, you know, they probably get a much lesser number of pitches from people like you compared to the more obvious outdoor gear companies. Exactly. Yeah. Are you doing this yourself or do you have to hire someone to do it? I wish I could hire somebody. I don't have enough money. Um, No, I've been going at this alone. So I've had a lot. I mean, so much of, of building my career has been luck and networking and just people seeing value in what I'm doing and believing in what I'm doing and helping me. And, you know, a good, a good friend of mine built my website and he still manages my website and, you know, I, I still can't pay him. But, uh, my, one of my bosses who owns a ski shop is an ex Olympian and he helped me initially just kind of figure out how to write a proposal to a company. Obviously as, as a professional ski racer himself, he had a bunch of sponsors. And so, you know, he gave me some guidance on how do I figure this out? And my brother and sister-in-laws have, have helped me kind of learn to stalk people on LinkedIn. And, <laughs> and how do you find, you know, who's the VP of marketing or who's, you know, who might be the person that would open that email. And a lot of it has just been clawing my way yeah. up a, a never ending hill all on my own. Yeah, yeah. So I do want to understand what a typical year then looks like for you in terms of, you know, how much time is spent on training, climbing, and then doing this sort of thing. But just one quick question on numbers. Uh, How much does a typical expedition cost? It truly ranges. So the trip in South America, I believe, you know, five years ago was $5,000. This is all inclusive? Including everything, including airfare and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Denali was more like eleven thousand. Got it. Or, okay. it, or if you break your arm, it becomes a two hundred thousand dollar trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Everest, depending on what company you go with, can range from twenty five thousand dollars to seventy thousand, oh, which wow. is what I paid. Wow! Wow! So it really just depends where you're going, how much the permit is, and how long the expedition is. Mm. And these sponsorships that you're talking about, can you, I mean, I'm sure this ranges a lot, but what range are we talking about when companies choose to sponsor you? Yeah, so it it hasn't been more than 20,000, which is more than I ever thought I would get and is also frustrating because it's so hard to find, you know, 15 companies that'll give me $2,000 $2,000 or $5,000 because then I am all of a sudden spending all of my free time giving back to these 15 companies, whether it's speaking engagements or appearances or, you know, what, whatever it is that we agreed upon. And so then all of a sudden I'm don't have time to work or do anything else or plan my next trip. So after Everest, I promised myself that, you know, all of the debt that I've gone in and everything that I put on hold that moving forward, I wouldn't wouldn't proceed with the climb unless I got it a hundred percent funded. Gotcha. And so that's kind of been a a new, very, very challenging goal, but you know, Antarctica is $42,000 and now I'm going after bigger companies and asking for more because it's a lot easier, you know, to give time and energy to three companies that gave me 15,000 than Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Ten. Yeah, but those those numbers actually, if if you keep at it, then it is possible for you to make an actual like you know you can be doing this full time where your sponsorships are not only paying for your trip, but you have surplus which you can use for other things then. Yeah, that that is possible for me. My goal is should I raise or when I raise over the amount that I need and it doesn't go towards another climb, uh, I would like to take that money and, and donate it somewhere and kind of give back. I feel like a lot of times in mountaineering, personally, I feel like it's a very selfish sport. It's, you know, you against a mountain and it puts your family and friends through hell while you're on this expedition where it's very easy for you to die. And I feel like I'm constantly taking and, you know, asking people to help support me financially and, and mentally and all that. I'm ready to, to start giving back. Hmm. So for me, anything that's raced over, I want to start pushing back into either female empowerment programs or uh, I'm passionate about climate change and bringing awareness to that. So. So for me, I, I don't plan on capitalizing off of that. I plan on capitalizing more off of uh, my public speaking and a couple of book projects that I have going and stuff like that. I see. Okay, that makes sense. And uh, that's it's really good that you're doing that. Um, so a little bit of a, of a, of a 90 degree storm, but you mentioned <laughs> that, you know, how, uh, you know, these are, this is a very dangerous thing, right? Anything can go wrong. Uh the fact that, you know, you might run into a life-threatening situation is more than common in this particular scenario. <laughs> so how do you, I guess my question is that, you know, does that scare you and how do you deal with that fear? I mean, of course it scares me. You know, you're you're lying or you're really dumb if you say it doesn't scare you. And, and if you're not scared, then I'm scared for you because it means you're not thinking about it logically. Uh, anything can go can go wrong. And especially with Mother Nature, you have no control over that. And so for me, the seven summits are pretty straightforward. But other climbs that I have kind of set out in the future, you know, at some point, you have to weigh the risks that you can control, and, and the stuff that's completely out of your control. And if, if it doesn't make sense, then I won't do it. And it's like anything, you know, you can you can die sitting in rush hour traffic driving to work or you can get hit by an avalanche that randomly kicked off while climbing and they both sound pretty awful. Yeah. <laughs> but I think for me, I would rather lose my life playing outside doing the things I love than die climbing up a ladder on my roof to mm -hmm. save a bird mm -hmm. or something. I don't, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I, to me, Yes, it's dangerous and it's scary, but if I'm going to leave this world, it better be doing something cool. So I'm I'm okay with that risk. Yeah, and and what you're saying actually sounds similar to when I was just listening to a a video by Alex Hunold, which who I'm sure you're familiar with. He just climbed yes. El Capitan free solo, and I think he says something very similar. Right, like I want to die doing something that I truly enjoy rather than uh, die in like a traffic accident or something. But, you know, it's easier said than done. But, you know, it seems to be working. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. I think as a young kid, I'm the youngest of four. I have three older brothers. And I feel like I've always lived my life, you know, kind of on the edge. I've always, you know, been trying to keep up with my brothers. And I've broken 26 bones in my life. And I would say 95% of those included one brother. So I'm used to kind of, 
living on the edge and testing my boundaries. But, you know, for me, the biggest challenge in my life isn't, you know, how much, how successful can I be or how much money do I make? It's how far can I push myself? How far can I push my, myself physically and mentally and, and where, where's my breaking point? And so to me that there's no other way that I would want to live my life than climbing up the side of a freezing mountain. And what is the self-talk like when you are confronted with a life-threatening situation? So you described in the beginning of the discussion that you were at Everest and the 7.8 earthquake happened. So I'm sure that you must have been scared. You just called it the, one of the most scary moments in your life. What happened in your in your mind at that time? I think in that time and really, you know, even when I broke my arm or any time that I ever find myself really scared, I just kind of take a deep breath and remind myself that you can only control so much. And the last thing you need to do is panic. And, you know, I think during the earthquake, I wasn't, I wasn't that scared in the moment. I say it's the scariest moment in my life because looking back, I realize how bad it was. And of course I knew it was bad at the time, but your body has an amazing ability to, you know, pump adrenaline through you and then you just kind of get through it. And it's not until you have a second where you know you're safe and you can look back and kind of reflect on what happened that you really feel like you might pee your pants when, when you think about it. But for me, whenever I, I get scared on a mountain, I mean, even just when I broke my arm on Denali, I broke it using this method of how you descend the mountain. And it's called the arm wrap method where you position the rope that is fixed to the mountain a certain way around your arm to create friction. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of lean away from the mountain and let gravity pull you. And it's a fast, efficient way to move. So I remember the first time I had to do that arm wrap again after having surgery and feeling terrified and having, you know, some post-traumatic stress kick in and all that. And just telling myself, don't be a sissy. You're better than this. It's not a big deal. Just go. And so for me, I usually just yell at myself and say, God didn't give me three older brothers to be a sissy. So suck it up and go. And then I'm fine. I, I want to say something to tell you like how amazing this is, but I, I honestly, I don't know what to say. It's just, except <laughs> that, you know, I can't imagine, you know, just how scary something like this can be. And I, I do think that it requires a certain kind of person to be, to be okay doing it. It, it probably like, it, to me, it sounds like you enjoy this so much. Like the thought of doing it, or rather, rather the thought of not doing it is a lot worse than doing it and being confronted by these situations. That's the only thing that would explain it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the fear of missing out and, and not experiencing it is, you know, the worst part. I mean, I, truth be told, before I left for Denali, five days before I left, I broke my foot at a wedding dancing on the dance floor. And... <laughs> everybody said your trip's over. There's no way you're going to Alaska in five days. And I just said, you know, to hell I'm not. If I can get my foot in that boot, I'm going to go and I'm going to try because I'm not going to sit here and wonder, could I have done it? No, I'm going to put that boot on and I'm going to go try. And if I try and realize it's not possible because my foot's broken, then, you know, I'll bow out. I have no problem doing that. But yeah, I'm not, I think that the fear of not trying and missing out and wondering would eat me alive more than trying and failing. So Mm. I I think that's, that's huge for me. And then I also think 
something that is an advantage is that I am young. I'm single. I don't have a, you know, I have my family, but I don't have my own family. And most of the people that I climb with are married. They have kids, you know, they have reasons that they need to come home. And I don't mean that in a morbid way, but for me, I don't have the fear of wanting to be Mm. anywhere else. You know, Mm. when I show up on Everest, that's the only place I want to be. I'm I'm not missing my kids. I'm not missing my spouse. Of, Of course, I'm missing my friends and my family, but you know, they're just having fun watching me go. So I think for me that that is a big advantage because I don't feel like I need to be anywhere else except exactly where I am. Mm. Has that been a conscious decision? Uh, it has not been a conscious decision. It's turns out it's hard to find somebody that wants to date kind of a stubborn woman. Um, <laughs> it just hasn't, it just hasn't worked out. No, I mean, I, I would love to get married. I don't know that I want to have kids someday, but I think what I do and the goals that I've set for myself, you know, at this point they come before anybody. And I think that makes finding a relationship yeah. difficult when they're always going to know that the next mountain's more important at this present time. I mean, you also chosen a uh, chosen an activity where the number of people around you is just less. I mean, I can't imagine a whole bunch of eligible people on the top of Everest just hanging around. No, <laughs> you know, and I was hoping for that. Honestly, the first year I went, my parents have always kind of doubted, you know, when are you going to get a job? When are you going to get married? Like, when are you going to stop playing on mountains? And I, I just laugh and I say, Mom, I'm going to Everest. Come on, there's got to be, you know, I'm going to be one of like 10 women at base camp of, you know, couple thousand my odds are looking pretty good (laughs) no they're all married or they're all divorced or crazy so I'll have to keep looking (laughs) so so then again doing a little bit of an about turn I want to understand a little bit of you know just what did what does life as a professional mountaineer look like so maybe if I, I don't know what the right time span is but maybe a year in any typical year what are the key activities that you do and how much, how is your time split across them? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, again, it's, it's working nonstop. It's working as much as I can to save money and, you know, get ready. But really it's most of your year is is spent planning. It's where's the next trip? How much do I need? When does the deposit need to go down? You know, when do I need to book a flight kind of a thing? And once you have that timeline, uh, for me, it's all right, who am I going to try to get sponsorship from? And most of my days are spent either, either at my work where I get paid or working on sponsorship letters to send out and finding people on LinkedIn and trying to get contacts Mm -hmm. or writing a book. I've been working on a book. It's, it seems like it's never ending. You know, I don't, I don't understand how people go to their day job and then go home and they have nothing to do. I don't understand. I don't understand that world. And it's very frustrating to watch friends, you know, say, Oh, let's go to happy hour. I'm like, what do you, how do you not have something to do right now? I always have something to do, whether it's network or, you know, send something out or work on my website or try to get a speaking engagement. It's, it's a never ending battle. And then, somewhere in there, you have to also maintain a certain level of fitness. So for me, it's easy because I live in a ski town and I can work for a couple hours in the morning and then I get a three hour break to go ski. So for me, that doesn't really feel like working out or exercise. It's just fun. Um, 
And, you know, going for a mountain bike ride is fun, even though it's exercise or playing tennis is fun, even though it's exercise. And um, I really only spend three hours a week in a gym getting my butt kicked by a guy. And that's kind of my workout is three hours a week, which is great. Um, And then the rest is just kind of playing outside and having fun. But your year is just, it's consumed by planning and plotting and problem solving. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if if I were to say that a year is up by 100%, right? Uh, Yeah. Probably based on what you're describing and tell me if if this is inaccurate, but maybe something like 20, 30% of the time goes into an actual climb. And this could be like a big one, like, you know, you're going to Everest or Denali. And then another, let's say 20, 30% is in training across the year. So imagine the pie. And then the remaining 40% is more working in your day job and and then also going after these sponsors to get money. Would that be Uh, Yeah, I mean, I would say, honestly, it's probably more like 50, 50% is working. 50 or 60% is just working towards the the financial sure. goal. And then how is it split between the, the training and the, and the actual climb? I mean, like I said, for me, the training really is probably the smallest part. Yeah, probably 20% training, 20% actual climb. Hmm, I see. If you were to think about like, you know, either people you admire in mountaineering or even people that you know who are successful at this, what do you think are some of the key qualities that stand out about them? Key qualities. Um, They're definitely charismatic and approachable. There's a lot to be said about, you know, being able to have somebody come on stage and do an interview and not sound silly or not give away the good stuff. So definitely um, charismatic. They have to be a good storyteller. And they generally are are pretty open to the world, seeing their lives for the good, the bad, the ugly, the messy. Um, And they're open about sharing that. And I think the biggest thing is they're humble. There's a lot of people in this world that are not humble. And for me, it's just the biggest turnoff, you know, people, yeah, it's great that you summited something, but people don't really care that you stood on the summit. They care about like, what, what did it take to get there Hmm. and be honest about the struggles and the triumphs. And, and if you can't be humble about everything you've accomplished, then you're definitely not going to be successful. So it's, it's, it's interesting, the qualities that you mentioned, because nowhere does it talk about you have to be actually good at your job, like a, a good... Mo- no. Well, I mean, it, I guess that just goes without saying, right? I mean, you, you, of course, you have to be good at the sport. You have to be good at the discipline. But, but being good at a sport, I think, I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean that you're the fastest? Or does that mean that you get to the top and back down safely every time? You know, what does is, what is good mean in the sport? I think as long, I think the people that I admire the most are the ones that are safe and they're humble and they may not be the fastest, they may not be doing a new route, but they hold all of those other kind of characteristics and integrity a little bit. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like you're describing that, you know, how how being good at the sport is just sort of step one. Like without that, you don't have anything. But once you're good at the sport, you also have to be a good storyteller and be humble and uh, be approachable and be able to sort of go out there and share your story, which will actually help you convert this into more of a of a career, so to say, as opposed to just doing it as a hobby. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I don't want to say you have to be likable, but I mean, you have to be flexible and get along with people because there's nothing worse than being stuck on a nine week expedition with somebody who's always grumpy or not friendly or just irritating all the time. That's, that's probably your biggest fear going into a trip. Is there somebody that's going to, that I'm going to hate? Because again, it doesn't matter if that person is the fastest or the most accomplished climber. If, If they're no fun to be around and they bring down the morale of the rest of the team, then to me, they're the worst climber. Right. And actually, that's a very good point that mostly, I mean, someone can choose to climb a mountain alone, but a lot of times you guys are climbing in a team. And so being able to work within a team is very is critical. Yes. Yeah. It's very critical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what about this uh, working as a mountaineer? What about this do you like the most? What is the most rewarding piece of this job? I don't want to call it a job. I don't think it's a wow, job. Wow, that's a good one. I think, I mean, the most rewarding for me now has just been sharing my story and seeing how it can help inspire somebody else. And I think my story is unique because of the setbacks and because I'm a woman and, and everything that I've kind of, you know, battled along the way. People recognize me as a normal person. You know, they don't they don't see me as a, you know, the Michael Jordan of climbing. I'm just a normal person that set fantastic goal and have managed to achieve it despite all odds. And I think that's been the most rewarding part is how can I help people get over whatever obstacle they're facing in their lives? Or how can I help inspire somebody to, to reach their, their lifelong dream? And are there any aspects about this that you do not like? Yeah, I hate the cold. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't like the cold, um, which is funny. I I hate the cold. Um, that's probably the part I hate the most. But I think I think the other part that's that's tough is just being open to sharing with the world, and that's just hard. You know, it's it's hard when somebody. I I work as a bartender sometimes, and it's hard when somebody comes up at the bar and says, "Oh, are you the Everest girl?" And I say, you know, yeah. And they're like, oh, what was that like? And, you know, I find myself getting irritated and wanting to snap back. Like, well, I mean, how the hell do you think it was? It was awesome. Like, I'm not having this conversation with you. You're a complete stranger and I'm working. And, you know, so trying to, that, that's the part I think I, I don't like the most is trying to be patient and talk about things that are so very personal to me to complete strangers. Yeah, but I guess the more people get to know you, the more you can expect that, right? Absolutely. And, you know, the more people that that know my story, I mean, you never know who you're talking to. Yeah. You know, I could be especially living in a tourist town. I, I, I have no idea who is sitting on the other side of that bar or who is, you know, walking into the ski shop I manage. I, I never know. And it could be the person that could give me the break I need. Yeah. Yeah. Can you share maybe some failures that you've had through your journey? 
Yeah. I mean, I think going back to that very first sponsorship meeting I had, that was, I would consider a big fail. Uh, and a lot of sponsorship meetings after that were massive failures, just hearing no over and over and over again. And it's like anything, anybody in sales will tell you, you know, you hear no, you know, a hundred times and then you get that first yes and you have yourself a party and you're like, all right. And then you hear no's again, again, again. And then you hear that yes again. And eventually you start hearing yes more and no less. So that was definitely a repeated failure. And I feel like on some level, I feel like Denali was a failure to me. Although I made the summit, I didn't get off the mountain on my own two feet. I had to get airlifted from you know, 14,000 feet. And so to me, I think deep down that is a failure. Mm-hmm. Although I did it, I didn't finish it. So that's something that I look forward to going back and doing again. Mm-hmm. I see. And yeah. um, lots of failures, lots of setbacks. I don't know. I mean, the minute I think I get ahead, I get knocked back down. Or the minute I think I have a sponsor lined up, they say no or pull out. So it's, it's definitely a an, an uphill struggle. I think physically my body has given out on several different occasions. I mean, right now I've been battling a chronic hip issue for 12 months and that feels like a failure. You know, I went to try to run to train and I can't even run a mile without it hurting. So it's just, yeah, it's definitely a roller coaster, um, mentally and physically and emotionally and financially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in that whole sponsorship thing, what do you think has been your biggest learning in getting someone to say yes? Being confident in myself. And instead of saying, I think I would be a good fit, say I am a good fit. I think that's something I learned right out of that first meeting was when I walked out of there, I just said, all I kept saying was, I think I would be good. Or I think I am worth investing in or just, I, I never said I am. And that's kind of been the biggest takeaway is just speaking with confidence and and being confident about what my value is and then telling a company of the value instead of letting them kind of figure it out on their own. Yeah, yeah. Are there any things about... I, again, I, I always struggle with like figuring out like what to call you. But like, okay, yeah, are there any things about working... <laughs> as a mountaineer that you wish you had known before you started on this journey? Uh, not really. I, I mean, I, I, I knew the very first trip I went on that it was going to be very challenging to do the seven summits again, not so much physically for me, physically, I knew I could do it, but coming up with the rest of the stuff. So I wouldn't say there's a whole lot of secrets outside of, just the time commitment mm-hmm. that it takes, you know, you, you think an expedition, well, I'm leaving March and I'll be back in May, but really, yeah, that's when you're gone, but you're planning it for 365 days <clears throat> prior to your departure. So I think just really accepting the time commitment it takes. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Especially with the training and then the, the fact that right now you're trying to get all these sponsorships yourself. So, I mean, there's no end to the number of companies you can contact and the number of cold mails that you can send and then all the follow up. So, yeah. 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 Yes. 
is there so let's say that you know someone is interested in doing mountaineering themselves and they want to do it professionally and or let's say not even professionally that you know they want to do it and you know they love watching the videos and the movies what do you think is a good way for them to figure out whether they would actually want to do it over the long term uh one i i guess i would make sure that you like the outdoors um that you like sleeping on the ground for an extended period of time and make sure that you're willing to suffer quite a bit because there's a lot of suffering in mountaineering and if all of those sound good to you uh start on an easy mountain i always recommend people uh especially if you think the seven summits are something you want to do if you head down to argentina and climb aconcagua it's the highest mountain outside of the himalayas so it's 20 22300 i believe mm-hmm. i see um start there because you never know everybody's different you don't know if your body is going to just work at altitudes sometimes people's bodies just can't adjust and it just doesn't work and it's just not in your cards that you're going to be a high altitude climber which is fine but you might as well find out on a trip that's a little bit cheaper until you've committed to quite a few. So I always recommend Aconcagua. It's a long, anywhere from 16 to 20 day expedition and you get up high and it's got a little bit of everything, but across the board is manageable without a whole lot of prior knowledge that can be learned there. So I recommend starting there. And if you fall in love with it, just know that, you know, there's going to be suffering, but it's going to be worth it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's probably, I deliberately did not go into a lot of details of, you know, just what it's like physically to to be a mountaineer, because I feel that, you know, it's hard to explain it, right, in words. Like you want, when you see some of these documentaries, that's probably way more powerful to really see what it's like when you're hanging off of a cliff with winds <laughs> and ice and all that. Oh, my God. Yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, the greatest analogy I I give people is, you know, climbing on Everest without oxygen, which you do a lot of, most of the mountain you climb without oxygen. But I like to say it's kind of, could you imagine taking a step and every step you have to take 20 deep breaths before you can move again? And, And just, you know, imagine doing that over and over, over thousands and thousands of feet. Mm, yeah and that kind of helps put it into perspective <laughs> i mean do you take any kind of oxygen tanks and stuff uh i did yeah at from above camp three but but that first little bit yeah you're breathing pretty hard are there any resources you might want to recommend to people i'm not sure what they might be but just you know just anyone who's interested in doing something over here Maybe, maybe, you know, how do I connect with other mountaineers, things like that? Yeah. So a friend of mine who's a guide, Mike Hamill, he guides for International Mountain Guides, which I would recommend is a fantastic company I've used over and over again. And I think they they run a very safe and well thought out operation across the board. But good place to start. Mike Hamill has a book called Climbing the Seven Summits, if you're interested in the Seven Summits itself. And there he's kind of outlined the different routes people take and roughly what it costs and, and kind of help get the basic questions out of the way. And moving forward from there, there's a lot of different guide companies out there. And my biggest recommendation is is to spend the extra money on a company 
that has a really good reputation because that's half of the issue on Everest right now is people going with these budget operations. And as a result, it's people that aren't qualified to be there. They don't know what they're doing and people die. So for me, I'm willing to spend the extra money that I don't have to make sure I'm safe. And then I come home. Otherwise my mother will kill me if I'm not already dead. <laughs> oh God. So, so, um, yeah, do your research, find a good guide company. When you think you found one that you like, definitely call the office, talk to the owners, talk to them repeatedly, ask for recommendations from people and, and really make sure, do your research and really make sure that you're with a company that is going to take care of you. And gosh, I guess if you're trying to find sponsorship, I would, I would recommend reading, um, reading some sales books about how to pitch yourself. And I think learning how to do social media is always a good skill to have. I'm still not very good at it. And I really wish I knew how to use WordPress to build a website because that would be helpful. And I don't have that skill. So yeah, social media. I mean, I guess for you, one one big part of your pitch is just the number of followers you have on Twitter or on your Facebook page and the number of people exactly who your stuff yeah okay all right well thank you so much kim I, I wish you all the best uh what is the next expedition that's coming up for you the next expedition is going to be vincent massive down in antarctica at the end of this year wow and we almost almost have the full funding for that and i've decided to up the ante and instead of just doing the seven summits i'm also trying to do a traverse to the north pole and the south pole Oh, wow. And okay. when you do that, that's called the Explorer's Grand Slam. So the the next immediate goal is to raise the money to do the South Pole while I'm already down there climbing. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, pretty pricey. So end of this year, we're looking forward to heading south and playing with some penguins. No, that should be awesome. What's your, uh, what's your um, target in terms of the, the amount you're looking to raise? To do both, I need about 100000 I see. And where are you at right now? we're at about 30,000. Okay. All right. Well, if anyone's listening and interested in contributing, they should definitely reach out to you. What's your, uh, what's a good way to connect with you? Uh, you can either go to my website, which is kimhessclimbs.com. Mm-hmm. And from there, there's a lot of different ways to reach me or um, on Instagram. I am at Kimmy Hess. All right. That's two M's and two S's. Correct. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Kim. I wish you all the best. I hope we see you safe and sound next year after Antarctica. And we look forward yeah. to nice photographs. But yeah, thank Sounds you. Sounds good. Yeah. Thanks. You too. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Just before you leave, do remember to sign up for our newsletter on our website, learneducatediscover.com, where we share updates on new episodes, a lot of career-oriented resources, and a lot of other inspiring stories and videos and podcasts that we find online. So do check it out at learneducatediscover.com. You'll also find the library of all the other podcasts that we've done in the past on the website. Of course, if you have any questions at all, or if you just want to say hello, you can always email us. Just drop us a mail at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at LED underscore curator. That's LED underscore C-U-R-A-T-O-R. Of course, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learneducatediscover or you can also subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and for your time. And until the next one, bye-bye.